Mark 15, beginning at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, home, let me come home. Home is wherever I'm with you. Those are the words of a well-known, kind of beautiful song. And they sound kind of cliche, don't they? But aren't they still so true? Kristen and I, when we were considering uh, calls from this church and from another church, uh, both of which would take us uh, away, away from our family, uh, we spoke to a lot of pastors and their wives, uh, partly because we were kind of nervous. We didn't like the idea of moving so far away from uh, everything that we knew, uh, everyone that we loved. And it was so heartwarming to hear from a number of pastors and their families uh, this exact sentiment. They said that it was cliche, but that it's just so true. Wherever you're called, wherever you're led, uh, even far overseas to third world countries, as long as you have your spouse, your kids, and especially, especially, as long as you have your awesome God with you, then wherever God calls you, it, it won't take too long until that place was home. And that's exactly what Kristen and I have experienced as well. And maybe you have too. I know some of you have moved far away from your family and friends, some uh, overseas. And even if you haven't moved that far away, maybe you can still imagine it. With your family, with some select friends, uh, most of all, with your faithful God, your Heavenly Father, you can make your temporary home on earth just about anywhere, can't you? And with this support cast around you, you can get through so many changes and so many struggles and so many challenges. Well, Jesus, during his time on earth, especially towards the end of his life, he lost a lot of his support system, didn't he? He lost essentially every person he could count on throughout his life. We read in the Gospels of his brothers rejecting him. They thought he was crazy. We hear of religious leaders turning against him. In his moment of greatest need, all of his disciples turned their back on him. But throughout Jesus' life, he always had one person. He always had his heavenly father. From a young age, Jesus was found where? In his father's house. So that's where he had to be. Throughout his life, he would often go out to pray. He'd go to talk to his father, no matter what was going on. At one point, he says aloud, uh, after or right before a miracle, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. 
But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Likewise, predicting the desertion of his closest friends, the disciples, Jesus even says in John 16, verse 32, he says to his disciples, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet, I am not alone, for my Father is with me. We also heard that at key points in Jesus' ministry, specifically his baptism and the transfiguration, remember? The Father actually spoke to Jesus from heaven, confirming that Jesus was his dear, his beloved son, that he was pleased with him, that he loved him. But yet, there's one exception. Today is the exception. Good Friday. Jesus is at the most cruel and horrific part of his suffering. And at this point, in a sense, he finds himself far from the God of life. And we'll explore this in two points. We'll see first, Jesus died in judgment. And secondly, Jesus died in victory. So as we read in our text, or before our text rather, this day Jesus was mocked. A crown of thorns was pressed into his head. He was struck with a stick. He was spit on. He was made to carry his own execution device, we read in other uh, Gospels, until he was too weak and couldn't possibly carry it any longer. Then they recruited help for him. Finally, he was nailed to a cross at nine in the morning. Even then, the cruel mocking didn't start, stop. It got even worse. I wonder if you've ever experienced sudden, thick darkness. Maybe it's been a, a bright, sunny day. And then suddenly, a dark storm rolls in. The bright the sky is bright and cheerful one moment, then quickly a dark cloud covers the sun. And it can be an eerie feeling of darkness. Well, after three whole hours, three excruciating hours on the cross, at noon, when the sun shines brightest, a deep, eerie darkness covered the land, we read. Luke puts it in a remarkable way. Luke says, the sun's light failed. It was so dark. It's important to notice that in the Bible, darkness symbolizes three things. First of all, darkness symbolizes evil, doesn't it? And this, the day the, the innocent man, Jesus Christ, was sentenced to die and put on a cross, this was an evil day. Secondly, darkness also symbolizes Sorrow. This is a sorrowful day. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. Some say 300 or more, and some remarkably specific. Well, one Old Testament prophecy about this day is extremely specific. There's one from Amos chapter 8 about the coming Messiah. There the Lord says, On that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Today is that bitter day. The darkness symbolizes evil. It symbolizes sorrow. And finally, most of all, the darkness symbolizes judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, the threat of darkness is a threat of God's heavy 
judgment. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And so when God removes himself, when he removes his goodness and his grace, what's all left is only dark, heavy judgment and curse. And when darkness is referred to throughout the Gospels, it's usually used in this way. Jesus himself has taught that those who rebelled against God, those who rejected God, what would have happened to them is they would be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. What a dreadful picture. And the remarkable twist here is that Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to save those who believed in him, sinful, rebellious people like us, to save us, he has been bound hand and foot. And now he is cast into the outer darkness. And in his heaviest suffering, seemingly in his deepest time of need, Jesus is all alone. Jesus is completely alone in a way we can never know. Here for the first time, in a sense, his father wasn't pleased with him. Rather, his father was furious with him. Paul tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God took the record of your sins and my sins before God, and in Christ he nailed it to the cross. So God the Father looked down at Christ on the cross, and he saw you and me in our sin, and he was full of wrath. When he looked on Jesus, God the Father didn't see all of you and me, though. He didn't see us as wretched, miserable, dead in our sins when he looked at Jesus because we know that when God sees us that way, his heart is moved with compassion. His heart is stirred up. That's why he sent Jesus, isn't it? But that Friday, black as night, what the Father saw in Jesus was only the worst of us. All he saw was your sin. Not us as sinful people, not as his rebellious children, but our sin itself. Jesus, we're told by Paul, as we said, was made to be sin. Sin itself. Not only were our sins nailed to the tree, but sin was nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what made this the greatest suffering the world has ever and will ever known. This past week, I read a commentator who described the, the physical effects of crucifixion. Uh, he's a well-known preacher, and he said he would never describe it in its entirety in a sermon because it would be too much. He recognized that. But he said that he thought it was important to describe it in his commentary, and he reminded the readers before going on that they could take breaks to look away and collect themselves while they read about the torturous physical suffering of being crucified. The physical suffering Christ bore in our place. But as Tim Keller says so powerfully in one of his books, this immense physical suffering was only a tiny beginning of what Christ bore for us. This is what Tim Keller says. That is why already in the Garden of Gethsemane, the divine Son of God could say that he was overwhelmed to the point of death that he felt already he was being crushed. That is why on the cross, Jesus did not cry out, my hands, 
my hands, or my feet, my feet, or my head, my head. He certainly could have. His body had nails and thorns penetrating it. He was slowly, excruciatingly dying of blood loss and asphyxiation. Yet instead, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the spiritual separation from God that was Christ's ultimate agony. This was the darkness looming overhead. This was the pain he suffered. This was the judgment that Jesus died in. We need to realize today, this judgment was yours. This judgment was mine. This was the judgment that we should have died in. We should have been cast away from God's presence. We are the sinful ones. We should have experienced this crushing darkness, this crushing loneliness, this crushing wrath. It should have torn us apart, not him apart. Jesus, the holiest one of Israel, died in judgment, in our judgment. But he also died in victory. As we read in verse 38 of our text, when Jesus died, we read, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And brothers and sisters, this changes everything. To understand this, we need to think for a moment about the beginning. We have to think about creation. As we read at the beginning of the Bible, God created us to dwell with him, to, to walk and talk with him, to be at home with him in his presence. But when sin came into the world, into the hearts of humanity, when Adam and Eve and all of us were sent away because of Adam and Eve's sin, God in his great love and mercy still wanted to dwell with his people. And so he gave them the tabernacle and then the temple. He gave them a place where he could dwell with them again. And this was amazing. You can read throughout the Old Testament, you can read especially in the Psalms, just songs praising God's goodness and speaking about how wonderful it is to be in his presence in the temple. But yet the temple wasn't the same. It wasn't like it was in the beginning. Only priests could enter into the holy place of the temple and the holy of holies, the place in the center, the inner room where God actually said that he dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant, the real symbol of God's presence was. That was cut off from view. Just to enter the temple and have God with his people, blood needed to be shed from animals constantly. Sinful priests had to offer countless animals uh, for, on behalf of the people's sin before they could come to God. Even then, only once a year, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And again, only after a series of sacrifices. This was all to symbolize the result of our sin, which God warned us from the beginning was death. And so God showed for us to go back to him, towards him. Blood needed to be poured out. All the rest of the time, the Holy of Holies was blocked off by a curtain. And not like a curtain at home. Get that picture out of your mind. We can't be entirely sure, but the likely dimensions of this curtain are about 30 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick, most people think. This was a curtain that blocked off everybody, even the priests, except for one time a year, blocked them off from God. They couldn't go back. 
I wonder if any of you remember what was woven into this curtain. There was a picture embroidered into it. It was a picture of an angel. Specifically the cherubim. The very thing God sent to block Adam and Eve off from the Garden of Eden. Off from his presence. Off from eternal life with him. This curtain blocked the people, even the priests, off from God. But now, this day, Good Friday, Jesus died in fierce judgment. And God grabbed this veil that he had ordered made, and he tore it in two from the top to the bottom. Imagine the priests who were working in the temple, seeing this sight. Imagine the priests' wonder and their fear their amazement, especially if they got a glimpse into the Holy of Holies, and they didn't die. By taking our judgment, by dying in our place, by pouring out his own blood, Jesus opened up the way right back to God. By being separated from his Father, he opened the way back to bring us back to the Father. The author of Hebrews puts this beautifully in Hebrews 10, verse 20. He says that now there is a new and living way available for you, for me, to get right back to God. A way that has been torn open through the curtain. Specifically, he says, the way back to God is through Jesus' broken body. So now the author of Hebrews says, if we believe in Christ... If we trust in his sacrifice, we can walk and talk with God. We can look forward to doing it again in perfection. Already now we can go before him. We can go before his throne. We read in Hebrews 10, we can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That means for everyone, now, by a miracle, by Christ's death, there is a way back to God. No matter how sinful we are, no matter how guilty we are, how much we struggle, no matter how weak we are, or how shameful we are, we can go to God. Not because of who we are, because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the way back. And so Jesus died, not just in judgment, but in victory. Jesus accomplished exactly what he wanted to do. He was willing to be forsaken by God so that you might never be forsaken by him. He was willing to be thrust far from the God of life, so we might be brought into his loving arms. And all this suffering and all this pain, he did willingly. Again, the author of Hebrews says, he did it for the joy set before him. The joy of bringing us back to the God of life with him. It's so important to remember that Jesus is the one who laid down his life himself. Always remember, what held Jesus to the cross for six excruciating hours? It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross 
the nails driven through his hands and feet. As we're about to sing, it was my sin that held him there. And yet there's an even better answer. Why did our sin hold him there? What really held Jesus to the cross, to suffer for hours on end, to suffer forsakenness by God. It was his love that held him there. As the people mocked Jesus, why don't you come down? He could have. Of course he could have. He could have commanded an army of angels to come down. He didn't want to. He stayed up there and suffered for love. Love for us. Love for his Father. Desire to bring us back to where we ought to be, where we were created to be. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this in the Chronicles of Narnia. In that series, Aslan the, the lion, the Jesus-like figure, has agreed to kill, have himself killed to save a traitor's life. And so Aslan, this lion, he went willingly, and he handed himself over. And so his enemies, still scared, they went to bind him up. And then they started shrieking with triumph, C.S. Lewis says, when he made no resistance at all. They turned the lion over on his back and tied all four of his paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Jesus could have saved himself, of course. He didn't want to. He wanted to save you. And so when he died in judgment, he died in victory. He did exactly what he wanted to do. The people mocked him when he called out to God, saying that he wanted Elijah to come and save him. Elijah. As there were tales back then, apparently, that Elijah had saved righteous men in the past. But the people didn't realize, how could Elijah come to save him? He was dying to save Elijah. And so, as we see, he died successful. In fact, Mark tells us something remarkable. He says he died with a loud, with a great cry. He dies with a victory cry. And it's important to realize how most crucified people would die. Usually someone who is crucified would die with a whimper. From blood loss and from asphyxiation, they would die unconscious, gasping for air. Not Christ. After six long hours, he gave a great cry. We know from the other gospel writers just what he said. First he said, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died going back to the Father. Remember what he said to the criminal beside him. Jesus didn't go back to the Father alone. He said to the criminal beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. He went back to the Father, but not before he made sure that we could go to the Father with him. And that's how Jesus breathed his last, with a cry of victory, of triumph. Seeing this, Mark says another remarkable thing happened. There's a nearby Roman centurion that said something remarkable. I wonder if you noticed that as we read the text in verse 39. 
This was the centurion overseeing Jesus' death. And so this centurion, you have to imagine, he was likely there for most of the process. He must have known the charges against Jesus. He must have known he was accused of being a blasphemer and calling himself the Son of God. And he was likely the one who gave orders to have Jesus beaten and to have him pinned down and nailed to the cross, to have the cross put into its place. More than that, this centurion, it probably wasn't his first rodeo. He had overseen many crucifixions in the past. But of all the crucifixions he had seen, this one was different. The victory cry, for one thing, that's what Mark emphasizes. But all the rest of the crucifixion as well, the centurion saw it all. This man, he likely knew what a guilty man looked like as he was killed. And from seeing what happened this day, he knew that Jesus was not that. He saw as he called out for the Father to forgive his tormentors from the cross. What guilty man does that? He saw as Jesus forgave the criminal who had mocked him. He saw as he told the disciple to take care of his mother. The centurion must have seen the great darkness. The centurion finally, he heard these final cries. The centurion's verdict after witnessing all this, the death of our Savior, his conclusion is clear. The centurion says, he is innocent. That's what we read in Luke. And he's not saying he's innocent as in Jesus never said that he was the Son of God. Instead, the centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Surely the centurion didn't know all that this entailed, but we do. We've been through the book of Mark together. We also read in Luke, this centurion, the one who just killed Jesus, after coming to the conclusion, this must be the Son of God. After seeing the suffering, seeing his death, this centurion, we read in Luke, praised God. Imagine that. The centurion who helped execute this supposed criminal, he ends up saying he's the Son of God and praising God on account of him. And so this Good Friday, let's do the same as we look at the cross. Let's look at Jesus on the cross and realize he truly is the Son of God. He's the one who can bring us back. Let's praise him. Let's praise God for how holy he is. Looking at the cross, let's praise God for how much, first of all, he hates sin. This is a good and holy God. Let's beg that he might teach us to hate sin as much as he does. Let's ask that he might teach us to hate it as the disease that nearly killed us. That nearly made it so we could never go home. Let's hate it as the disease that then killed our dearest friend, Jesus. And looking at the cross, let's praise God that this is how much he loved weak and sinful people like us. This is how much he wants to have us come home to him. Each and every day, let's resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wherever we go, wherever God calls us, let's remember that this Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And our identity, our surety, our salvation depends only on him. He's our way back to God. There's one who died in judgment, leaving no judgment left for us. There's one who died in victory, making us 
more than conquerors. Because wherever we're with Jesus, or better, wherever Jesus is with us already now, already today, we are at home. Anywhere he calls us on this earth. And he tells us he is with us until the very end of the age. But more and more we look forward to the day when he returns. The day when we're with the God of life forever. And we'll see this blessed Savior face to face. Amen. Let's sing together.